Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Sean, uh, we're here to talk about Collect Wisely, and I think many people are familiar with the podcast, but I'm not sure so many understand that it, there's sort of a larger project uh, here. So I thought it might be good to start with sort of a little bit of background of why you started uh, the program, and then we can talk about the constituent parts. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope a lot of people are familiar with the podcasts. I mean, that's the most easily accessed, in a way, component. Um, it really came out of... Um, a sense of uh, growing dissatisfaction with the f some of the focal points in the art world. And I increasingly found myself talking to collectors and curators and, and different members of our community uh, who were getting quite um, upset, I think, about the emphasis and the focus in the art world um, being on very few points of, of what we do. And it was mainly to do with, you know, how much something had sold for. It was to do with money and it was to do with notoriety and it was to do with a sort of page six version of the art world. And, it, and I found it quite de depressing, frankly, that the thing that I care so much about, which is artists and the art and art was somehow being reduced to this very simple cipher. So I sat down with a very close friend of mine who's a collector, a prominent collector, one Sunday, and we were bemoaning this, trying to think of how we could push back and get back to having a conversation about real values and the value of art, not the, the resale value of art. So out of that conversation came a strategy for thinking about trying to recalibrate the conversation, but in a very positive way. That is what Collect Wisely sets out to do. Um, it sets out to find people who sh have shared values, who are interested in, in, who are passionate about the arts, not just from an investment perspective, but a cultural and historical perspective, and to understand what motivates them. And the podcast is probably the most audible, visible component of, of that project, but there are other elements to it. So tell me a bit about what the other elements are. The other elements were, <clears throat> are a series of adverts which in, you know, we call it season one last year, which really aimed to ask some pointed questions of the audience. And that's now sort of moved into another series of adverts, which focus on the collectors that we've spoken to in, in the podcast and use them as exemplars. So we're, we're, you know, we're taking a passport from somebody like Pamela Joyner and asking questions about where she travels and what she does. Also interventions. So we've made a number of interventions at art fairs with uh, the Collect Wisely experience where we've actually presented a single artwork every day and, and put a chair in front of it. And you can sit and listen to the artist talk about the creation of that artwork. So we're trying to create an environment where there's a very strong one-on-one -on -one connection between the viewer and the object and the viewer and the artist. 
um, and for that conversation to be focused on the quality of the work and the content of the work, not on the price of the work. Well, that sitting in front of uh, a work of art with the headphones, or even without the headphones on, yeah. just spending that extra time reminds me of um, uh, something that Michael Finley wrote about in one of his books about uh, art, was sort of forcing yourself to, to spend half an hour yeah. in front of a painting, not allowing yourself to come up with any sort of uh, easy judgment, or but just you know experience it uh, over time. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of what the people who sat through uh, that, uh, what they came away and, and said or told you? Yeah, I mean, you know, it is a very simple idea um, to slow down um, long enough to have a real experience with an object. Um, but I think the minute that you attempt to do that in an art fair, which is all about speed uh, and overload, um, it becomes fascinating because uh, you're asking uh, the viewer to do the exact opposite of the rest of their experience in that space. You know, it, it's almost like a social experiment. Uh, so what happens when you do that? It's even, it's even more pressurized than asking somebody to stand in front of an object in a, in a, in a museum for a period of time. And, and the result of that research at Miami last year was that people loved it and they, they felt incredibly rewarded by it. And we were constantly having people, you know, saying, my God, thank you so much. That was extraordinary and really enjoying it. And one of the very nice things about the podcast has been that we do eight or nine art fairs a year all over the world. And I can't tell you the number of people that come up to us all over the world um, in the fairs and, and thank us for the podcasts and say, you know, thank you so much. I listen to them all the time. Incredibly rewarding. What are they getting out of them? Calling someone a collector is an easy thing, but there no two collectors uh, should be alike. You know, everything uh, should have uh, uh, some, you know, a, a personal investment uh, from the, the collector, the couple, whoever's do, uh, uh, doing it. Is it from that experience of hearing different perspectives and understanding that, that there's no sort of one great collection? Yeah, I think, I think that's the essence of it. I mean, I, I do think that what most people talk to us about in terms of their experience of listening and enjoying um, Collect Wisely is the connection to the interlocutor, the connection to the person speaking about their experience uh, has a lot of commonalities for, for us all. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's a billionaire, you know, Tom Hill, uh, who has an extraordinary eye and, uh, you know, is was the first podcast. And if I thought of a connoisseur, it'd be Tom, that would be one of the people I thought of first, because I really do think he has a remarkable eye and an extraordinarily discerning aesthetic. But, and a broad, but, and a broad range. And a, and a very broad range from Renaissance bronzes to Christopher Wool. But a lot of the language that Tom used you can hear being used by Tiffany Zabludovich, who's 26, who was 26, or Gary Ye, who is 23. And, and that's interesting too. I mean, when I, I wanted to talk to young people who, def, who identified as collectors, uh, what do you talk to a 23-year-old collector about? I had no clue. 
Uh, so I sat down with Tiffany and, and Gary separately. I really didn't have any opportunity. There's no research to go on appreciably. I don't know what they collect. And uh, not, not a lot of opportunity to, you know, to find out a lot about them. Uh, so in the moment, you're sitting down talking about what they collect. And suddenly you find, uh, and it's incredibly enriching, this commonality of, of desire and language and passion that drives them as collectors is very similar to Tom and all the other people. Do you mean in terms of strategy or satisfaction? No, I mean in terms of criteria, in terms of how you evaluate, uh, you know, what you put in, what you get out of the experience, in terms of thinking. You know, to hear a 26-year-old talk about beauty uh, and her responsibility to the artist, uh, you know, as a collector was, I thought, remarkable. And, and for me, honestly, incredibly enriching uh, and sort of rewarding. I, I, felt my, I, I felt it was incredibly restorative to, lif- to listen to Tiffany and Gary talk like that uh, um, about post-internet collecting. Yeah. Um, and God knows what that was before I sat down with them. Uh, was just really, I came away super energized from those conversations and, and feeling like, yeah, you know, this is okay. We're all going to have a future. It's not the end of the world. And, you know, it's not just about money. And in the people who come to you with a response, either because they just heard it or they're, you're doing business with them and they happen to mention something for, for well, the bulk a, of them, I, I don't do, I'm not doing business with at all. I mean, they're coming onto the booth and, and, just saying how great the podcast yeah, is. Yeah. Are people using that language uh, themselves, having picked it up from these conversations? I don't know about the language, but I, I, we, we do know that a lot of people come on the booth and say, you know, uh, in particularly consultants, actually, interestingly, and advisors, a lot of them have come on the booth and said, you know, I've sent this to everybody I work with and said, listen to this. Not everything's going to be applicable, but... A lot of it is very good advice. And I think it almost sort of has a function as a teaching tool in a, yeah. fun, in a funny way. And one of the kind of challenges, of course, is that you don't really expect a dealer to be talking about this. I think one of the challenges is that, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who's passionate about the art world and about artists. For me, this is about sustainability. And I think that we all have a responsibility uh, to artists to culture, to collecting, um, and to our collective culture in the long term, to be very careful what we're doing to our culture. Because if we do not take care of it, it will not be sustainable. And when it is, you know, when it's gone, it's gone. It's no good complaining about, you know, the poor polar bear as it floats past on the last uh, ice flow. We've got to start thinking about this now. And what I mean by that is that you cannot run an art fair with five or ten clients. So if it's only going to be about the mega galleries and people aren't thinking about the small galleries and the startups and the medium-sized galleries and the ecology of the art world, and they don't think about artists in their studios and the ecology of artists who are less successful, then the the, the sort of flora and fauna of the art world is going to die. Well, also the the 
this ecosystem, to use your metaphor, can't um, thrive only on trophies. No. And, and, and great collectors are as excited about the small, minor works that either fit into something they're doing and, and make a connection or are just a, a counterpoint to uh, uh, major works. And the, the ability for people to enjoy and get as much satisfaction out of either the hunt for those things or the acquisition of, of them should be as an equal driving force in all of this as it is the big trophy property. Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, I think if, if one wants to continue mixing metaphors, which I'm extremely experienced at. I mean, you know, if you, if you, if you go to a wonderful, rich cultural environment like uh, Morocco or Marrakesh or Paris, um, you know, if you only stay on the broad boulevards and the, the flowing rivers of those cultures, you're going to miss a lot of the things that you find in the back alleys and the tributaries. And those are often some of the most enriching experiences. And I think collectors are the people who like, you know, not just the broad avenues and the, and the wide rivers, but the tributaries too. And, yeah. and you know, if we lose that, uh, if we lose the, stu the, the, the studio visit, the hidden artists, uh, then, we will have, then our culture will be incredibly diminished. I mean, one of the things that I like to think about um, a lot is if Marcel Duchamp were alive today, I do not believe that he would be, you know, sitting down to lunch and talking about leveraging his position with and or, or arbitraging his his position with investment bankers and trying to sell his work for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. I think he'd be functioning in a very different way, much more akin to somebody like David Hammonds. No, I think I think that the issue of art as an asset isn't so much the people who are trying to work around the asset value, it's the recognition that bonds and uh, uh, equities are created for the specific purpose of providing either an income stream or, or value. Uh, art isn't. And though there's to distribute anything, there needs to be finance around it. It's the, the purpose of uh, the art isn't to uh, create finance uh, in a way. Yeah, I think it's a very, for me, it's a very important point that there is a sort of turning point in, in, in the 90s where the language of banking becomes incorporated into the lingua franca of the art world. And that is extremely complicated and, and worrying as, as that occurs. Because suddenly you have dealers talking about, you know, about artworks the same way you, you would hear people from Goldman Sachs talking about, about, about deals. Now, I have no problem with Goldman Sachs. I have no problem, you know, any more than anybody else. I have no problem with making money. I want to make money. You're a dealer. I'm a dealer. I have no problem with any of that. What I have a problem with is, is a sort of tacit assumption that we've allowed the language and the ideology of, of that world to affect our world in a very profound way. And in doing so, I think we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, and, you know, for me, it's incredibly important. They have their job to do, and I respect that. Uh, but we have our job to do. And part of our job has to be to protect our culture. And that means not using artists like chips at a, at a, 
at a baccarat table, um, not playing poker with artists, um, not spinning the roulette wheel with the auction houses with the young artists, and actually taking some of the less savory practices, um, you know, really thinking about the ecology of what we're doing and, and standing back a bit and take, take a deep breath, because we don't have to behave like that. Well, and I, I uh, from the episodes I've listened to, none of your collectors are talking about that either. Well, it's interesting because the collectors, we try very hard to sit down with people who don't think like that. And, and you know, of course you can't vet it. And we don't say to anybody before we start, well, we'd prefer you not to talk about X, Y, or Z. We never do that. They just don't do it because they're much more enthusiastic and, and, and you know, engaged with the other aspects of, of, their, pra of their practice. Uh, and I think there have been very few instances where anybody's talked about the value of something, of what they paid for it. They talk about the value of it aesthetically or intellectually or emotionally. Um, so, you know, it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's very nice that people actually, in the main, have thought differently about what value means. I think that's a, it's an interesting aspect of our culture, and, and I mean sort of global uh, uh, culture since the 90s, is that the language of finance has infiltrated almost everything. Sure. I mean, it's not just the art world. Of course it's not. The, and culture and, and real estate and everywhere where, where else. And so in some ways, I, I think of it as being as much a byproduct of this larger thing happening in the rest of, uh, of the world. But I'm also reminded that financiers being involved in buying art is not a new thing and certainly not new since the 90s. And someone like Tom Hill, who is very accomplished in that world, is certainly capable of speaking in, in the most sophisticated financial language. But having the presence of mind to know the difference between those two, not so much cordoning it off, but knowing that when you're talking about aesthetics, you're talking about aesthetics and you can talk about the uh, financial side and you don't necessarily have to the two is the the I guess a discipline that uh, feels like has been lost or indeed that it's important to have firewalls between topics um, you know otherwise the boat can go down you know it's important to have bulwarks between uh, volumes what watertight compartments watertight, watertight compartments because you can lose the vehicle otherwise and I think that's kind of what I'm alluding to um, I talk to a lot of young artists. I, I'm a product of the 60s. You know, that was when I was growing up. And um, it, it's, I'm, I'm not somebody who's prone to nostalgia. I'm not nostalgic for it at all. But, um, you know, the truth of the matter is there was no money in the art world. There just wasn't. Um, so it wasn't about choice. It was just about a reality. A lot of young artists talk to me about, my God, it must have been so amazing then because you had such freedom and you could do whatever you want. And I said, yeah, we, we did, but it was really hard. But um, looking back on it now, it, uh, and I'm, I'm not being nostalgic for some sense of purity. I think that, you know, you can't put, you can't put Jack back in the box. You, you've, you've got to deal with what you're, with reality. So I'm not being nostalgic about it, but the truth of the matter is that it was a simpler time and the, the difference is money. And young artists now have a much more complex landscape to deal with. 
And I think the dealing environment is much more complex. And that's fine. That's challenging. And that's as it should be. Uh, I, I guess all I'm suggesting or arguing, I hope pers persuasively for, is not that there shouldn't be a lot of money in the art world. I, there should be. And I, I hope to, you know, profit from that as much as anybody else. But that I'm not going to be a better person by just having more than somebody else. You know, it's, it's, it's about the ecology, the ecological impact of how, of how we all function with each other. And that it's crucial to have young dealers. It's crucial to have mid-career dealers. We cannot have a healthy art world if there are 10 uber galleries, supermarkets who are serving all our needs. And, and perhaps the art world is less sophisticated than the food market right now. Because in the 60s, there was a headlong rush into supermarkets in the 70s. And now we're in the throes of the farm-to-table movement, for instance, and natural food, and really thinking about food in, in different ways. Well, we need to, I think we need to think about all sorts of aspects of our lives in different ways. And the art world could use a little bit of that, too. So I want to get back to season two um, of Collecting Wisely, but you have touched on, since we've been talking about metaphors, one of my favorite metaphors about the art world, uh, which is that art is where food was 30 years ago, which just to my mind simply means there were great restaurants 30 years ago, but you, we didn't have a food culture where everyone knew of the provenance of all the ingredients and there were roadside joints and, and, and trucks that had you know uh, great food that had been poured over and, and thought out in, in the most intricate way for all the flavors and experiences to, to them. And, and I say that in a hopeful way, because it does feel like we have traveled a great deal of, of the popular understanding uh, of artists and engagement with, with them, the huge number of people who go to museum shows and specifically shows of like Yayo Kusama's work and uh, all we have contemporary artists who many millions of people are familiar with and certainly not many millions are owners of their wor works uh, uh, at all. And it feels like there's an opportunity if it follows the tra same trajectory for there to be more and more interest in things that may be considered humbled now but will be celebrated uh, in the future. Uh, having sa said that, I do want to go back to season two. You had, um, you mentioned Tom Hill, Tiffany Zablutowicz, uh, Gary Yeh, I think you had Tiki Atencio yeah. and a couple others yeah. um, in the first season. What are your plans for season two? You know, one of the things that we assiduously avoided in season one was talking to, uh, if you like, famous collectors. Um, and we tried to not overload, I mean, it, there, there isn't a season one and season two, it's a sort of contiguous thing, I guess, but we refer to it like that. One of the things we tried not to do in season one was overload it with, you know, famous collectors who were on every, you know, on MoMA and Guggenheim and Whitney boards. We wanted it to be much more even-handed than that and to have a very broad geographic, um, ethnographic, uh, and age um, uh, spread. And we very consciously veered away from some of the more well-known, you know, famous collectors or, you know, uh, collectors who uh, are known in other worlds, many of whom we do know and work with. Um, so I think we 
feel that we're confident enough with the base of the listener now that we can broaden that out a little bit. So I do think you'll see a little bit more of an engagement with um, uh, some 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 people who I feel have made incredibly important uh, contributions through their philanthropy uh, at a very at the very highest level um, in America and around the world with different institutions uh, and with uh, the odd celebrity. I hate to use that term, but the odd celebrity uh, collector. And and you're because they're real people too. Yes, yes. And, and and they should find a place where they don't have to be a celebrity. And they, they should find somewhere they just talk about how passionate they are about the work they love collecting. But you're also going to try and do some things where you have some of the people who uh, appeared on the podcast uh, uh, contribute work to uh, exhibitions. Yeah, we we we've got very ambitious plans in the works um, for uh, a major publication. Um, and for uh, an exhibition which is drawn from um, collectors who've been on the podcast, we're going to invite collectors to contribute an artwork from the collection uh, and make a uh, a show, um, which would be a, a not a non you know non selling show, obviously because it's being drawn from their collections. Um, so we have lots of ambitious plans to sort of broaden out the genetic gene pool of. Um, the, the core of Collect Wisely, so that we can present ideas and information in different uh, in different media, so exhibitions, books, um, etc. But I think I think the most the most mainline route is still the podcast, as far as I'm concerned, because it really it it really does get to people very directly, and people seem to really be able to engage with it and and feel um, caught up in in the conversations, which is very well. You know, it's very nice for us. It's rewarding. Have there been artists who've engaged with this at, at all, either as like a, a way to hear what the collectors are uh, interested in in, a, in sort of different format who, or who want to participate in some way? Well, you know, um, that's a really good question. Uh, we have not invited any artists on yet. And yet uh, artists are often some of the most passionate collectors. When we started... Uh, we we very consciously decided that we would not invite professionals. We would not invite. Uh, I'm an ex curator and museum director, uh, and we very consciously decided we would not invite uh, curators and museum uh, museum and institutional um, professionals. Uh, and we we haven't invited any artists. We're going to change that because. Um, I, I don't think we're going to invite curators and museum people on, but I do think we're going to invite artists on because there are remarkable collections being formed by artists, you know, and and I'd love to be able to talk to to some of them about why they're passionate about what they collect. And it, it's very interesting what they're collecting as well. And uh, advisors and other dealers, are they fair game for this or...? You know, I, th I, th I mean, again, we've really tried to keep away from the professionalization of this and, and, and allow the people who I believe are on the, the cutting edge of collecting, which is the collectors. The collectors are the, are the people who are the lightest on their feet, who can put their hands in the pockets and support an artist fastest. A decision has to, doesn't have to go through a board and take six months with a museum and, and be reviewed. 
And it doesn't even have to be explained, right? I mean, it can be a gut yeah, decision. It, it or... can be totally subjective. They really are supporting culture. They're putting their hands in their pockets. It's their dollars they're spending. And I want to know why. I want to know what drives them to do that. So I think we've tried to avoid all of the other structures, the professionalization of the art world. It's not that we don't want to talk to those people. Um, I, I do. I talk to them all the time. And I think there are wonderful people working in all those areas. Um, it's just right now for me, in terms of learning, the cutting edge is talking to the collectors. And do you find, I mean, uh, when you have so many people advising and there's so much of a, um, an infrastructure around the acquisition of art, I mean, you know, even, even the most self-directed collector these days is aware of a great deal of information and opinion and all sure. that, that I don't, I think is new uh, or, or substantially different than say, if you were buying art in the seventies or eighties, uh, maybe that's uh, not right. Well, like the great collections, you know, most of the great American collections were formed by, by advisors. I mean, Berenson, et cetera. I mean, you know, um, uh, if, 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 if you, 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 you think about, uh, you know, Isabel Stewart Gardner and, yeah. um, you know, JP Morgan and, uh, you know, the Frick, they were really all talk, they were being advised by, you, you know, runners, in effect, advisors in Europe. And, and those histories are being revised now as well, of course. Um, so I don't think it's a new phenomenon. I just think it's a, the same as the art world. I mean, when I started the art world, uh, again, a metaphor that I use is the art world was like a, a small brook meandering through a meadow. And now it's like the Orinoco. I mean, it's, you know, you barely get across it in a steamship. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's just changed. There's more people involved. There's more interest. And that's good for all of us. But it changes. It changes the experience. Well, that's what I was uh, leading up to asking is when you talk to a collector, do you get a sense of some collectors being maybe too much repeating what they've been, uh, a version of buying with one's ears instead of eyes? Uh, of you know? course. I mean, of course. I mean, you get, you know, uh, there are people who are afraid to form a judgment without having it validated, that's human nature, isn't it? I mean, we're all subject to that. Um, and there are people who um, listen way more than they look. Um, we're trying rather hard to find the people who spend a great deal of time looking and who are constantly about, you know, on this ser search to educate themselves. Looking and choosing, right? It's about decision making. Yeah, looking and choosing, and and you know the other fascinating thing about this is that one of the one of the sort of sub texts that runs that shot through Collect Wisely is how often we hear people talking about how it's become their lifestyle, and how it's become their social uh, environment, and how collecting has formed a community around them, and it informs where they go and who they speak to and how they travel and how they think. Uh, you know, it almost becomes, uh, you know, I was talking to one collector about how parallel it would be to, you know, if you were a passionate football supporter uh, in, in, in Sao Paulo or in London and, you know, or Manchester and you were, you know, you're following your team all over the world. I mean, it's, it's very similar. It's kind of tribal. It's just a different tribe. And it's a little bit competitive like that, too. Uh, you know, you, people want to win, and uh, they see themselves in a league uh, and, and having, you know, some, their ups and downs. But the question about winning is a very interesting one. I mean, what is 
a 23-year-old post-internet collector's definition of winning. Um, it certainly isn't the same as Tom Hill's, um, but the language they use is very, very similar. And, you know, do we think about Tom Hill uh, only in the context of, uh, you know, his, his large collection of Christopher Wall, or because it's something that isn't preoccupying us as much, shouldn't we be thinking about him more about his world-class collection of Renaissance bronzes, which is unparalleled, which was shown at, uh, um, uh, at the Frick um, a few years ago. So I, I think the question of how you calibrate the criteria is very important. And that's where allowing the collector's voice to be heard answers the question. So you reminded me of um, something else that was uh, in an interview related to Tom Hill and Renaissance Bronzes, which is uh, Peter Marino, the ar architect who's also uh, a collector, uh, was talking about he keeps uh, and he changes them, rotates them, but he keeps a, a one of his bronzes uh, in his uh, bathroom by the mirror uh, uh, so that, you know, in the morning or uh, when he's spending time there, he can contemplate the bronze. And he said, when you think about it, the way to experience your art is choose a time and a place where you really can spend some time with it and all. And that, that, that story kind of struck me as, you know, when you are a collector, you have the freedom to choose how you uh, experience art. It's the difference that separates you from the museum goer or fair go goer who has a brief window and opportunity has to stand in front of it, even if they linger for, for mere moments. But the collector is the person who has uh, the chance encounter has the 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 moment that that seizes them, uh, you know, without uh, uh, planning or warning. Well, I'm to no small extent. Many of them can be in trouble. They're in control of their environment. I mean, I talked to a collector in Taiwan, really in fascinating guy who talked extensively about the history. Leo Shu, who talked extensively about the history of collecting in China and Taiwan and how different it is and what that means. And at one point, I asked him how many artworks he he, he owns, and it, you know the answer was extraordinary—tens of thousands. And then I asked him how often he changed his collection. I was expecting to hear once a year or twice a year, and he said, "Oh, every six weeks." Uh, I I mean, imagine the the undertaking and the passion involved in that, and and the pleasure and the planning. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. And then. You know, um, collectors, other collectors like Rodney Miller, who hand their collections, their homes, over to a curator once a year, and and they open up their, you know, their the 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 information on the catalogue of their collection, how, such as it is, uh, how many pieces it is, and and say, you know, go to town and come back to find their homes rehung by. Uh, and defined by somebody else's taste. I mean, absolutely fascinating. That's an extraordinary um, level of trust. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, just how exciting. You know, go away for the week on business and come back and find your house rehung uh, by, a, by a curator that you've invited. I think it's an incredibly bold and exciting thing to do. Better hope they get it right, otherwise you're going to have a long year. <laughs> I want that job. You know, I, I, I said, well, can I come and do it once? And? I think I'm getting close to getting an invitation. <laughs> It'll be great to see what you come up with. I, I, would love to, I would love to find that out myself. Part of 
the fun of this for me is that I, I collect and, and I'm still trying to figure out, you know, how I do that, what that looks like. Um, but I'm a passionate collector uh, uh, who has all of the same, uh, you know, it, passions and, and, and pe peccadilloes and kind of problems that every collector has. And, um, you know, talking to really seasoned and smart and young people who are collecting passionately is, is a great journey of, of learning for me. Um, and, and it's helping me sort of, I think it's helping me. I hope it's making me a better collector. Thank you so much, Sean. I appreciate your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been very nice to sit on the other side of the microphone. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. Thank you.